Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome ETF strategist Etienne Yonkers-Bouchard as he breaks down the ETF industry, including investing trends for the remainder of the year. Etienne gives an overview of the growth of ETFs in Canada. Last year, there was $35 billion in net new assets. As of September of this year, we are at $30 billion for the industry, which is dominated by the fixed incomes and mostly cash alternatives. He notes there has been a significant growth in the active side of the ETF industry over the past couple of years. Etienne points to a survey done by a discount broker in the U.S. that reports that 89% of millennials own ETFs and it's their vehicle of choice and more than 60% of baby boomers would use ETFs as their vehicle of choice. Taking a look at U.S. equities, Etienne says in terms of performance, it has been pretty good when you look at the benchmark. He says we've seen double-digit returns so far this year on the S&P 500, but a big concern is the lack of breath. There are fears that this index has gotten too concentrated and is really pulled up by the magnificent seven stocks. Those stocks represent 95.6% of the year-to-date total return of the index as of October 20th. Etienne also touches on the volatility of the bond markets, factor investing, and all-in-one ETFs. This podcast was recorded on October 27, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Etienne. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Great to see you, Pamela, and very happy to be back on Fidelity Connects. Yeah, delighted that you can join us here to, to help close out the week. Okay, well, let's let's go to those outflow trends. Um, take us to the, the the flows, the outflows, the inflows. What are you seeing? Yeah, so there's there are some outflows, but I'd say there's a lot more inflows. The Canadian ETF industry is actually enjoying a really solid year once again. And uh, last year, just to put everything into perspective, we saw 35 billion in net new assets. So that was for the calendar year of 2022. Uh, looking where we are so far this year, as of the end of September, we're actually getting very close to that number. We're slightly above 30 billion for the industry as a whole. Uh, that's been largely dominated by the fixed income side, which has seen about 19 billion of flows, so more, a bit more than half. Uh, you've seen equities and positive inflows also, but some areas may be seeing a little bit more of a weakness. Uh, like you mentioned, U.S. equities. I think this is the first time, at least in in a couple years, where we've seen U.S. equities. Uh, in terms, in terms of new assets coming in, obviously not from a performance standpoint. We're really talking about just, uh, purchases and, and sales of certain ETFs, uh, lagging Canada and international. Uh, and really the, the, the majority of that actually going to the international side. And, and that includes emerging markets, but also developed international markets like Europe, Japan and, and, and others. Uh, so that's, that's one of, you know, some of the main things that we've seen. And I guess the last comment I can make with regards to flows on the onset here is just, uh, to keep in mind that a lot of that fixed income uh, component is uh, cash alternatives. Uh, so basically high interest savings ETFs, 
uh, money market-esque, if you will, very, very low, if not none uh, in terms of duration, but offering attractive yields given where rates have gone. It's fascinating. So so just sort of back to clarify, if you don't mind, just for my yep. like, um why such small breadth within the S&P 500, the so-called magnificent? Why is that leading to outflows? Just because there aren't as many options? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think it's a good question because U.S. equities, like like you mentioned on the to to start the the presentation here, is that performance has been pretty good when you look at the benchmark, right? Like you've seen, you know, double digit returns so far this year on S on the S and P 500. That's in U.S. dollar terms, probably even better, obviously in Canadian dollar terms. If you're uh, given where the USD is gone. You can really see that there's been a lack of breadth, and, and we feel like that's one of the reasons or concerns among advisors and investors is that, you know, maybe this index has gotten too concentrated and to a certain extent is really pulled up by just seven stocks, which are conveniently called the Magnificent Seven, as you mentioned. So that includes Alphabet, Meta, Amazon, Tesla, Apple, Microsoft, and NVIDIA. And those seven stocks represent 95.6% of the year-to-date total return of the index. That's as of October 20th. Keep in mind that, you know, yesterday was a little bit of a volatile day for some of those names. So maybe it's come down a little bit, but it's still by far the majority. And, and the other 493 stocks have only represented 50 basis points of total return. So if you're not holding those stocks, you're not doing that well. Actually, the equal weighted index is barely flat for the year, right? It's like one and a half percent. So I think it just begs the question of, you know, is there ways we can potentially diversify away from that? So let's go there. I mean, I was going to ask you this a little bit later on, but but to the equity side of things and, and whether we get into, let's get into the macro story behind it. We're, we're trying to figure out what sort of cycle we're coming up to, where, where leadership goes from here, um, whether equity or bonds. Um, what's next, ultimately? I mean, a lot of things, those other 493 companies look relatively cheap, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, to your point, I think the valuation, uh, not not argument, but reality is one that that is is driving returns a little bit more than say, yes, monetary policy has really been the big the big driver over the past two years. But now, you know, I think there's a lot more investors resorting to fundamentals and earnings growth. And what we've seen so far this year, and this is alluding a little bit to kind of that concentration, obviously, the top five stocks in the S&P 500 are trading at 26 times earnings. The index is at 19.7 times, so maybe a little bit above average, but the bottom 495 stocks are actually at around 17 times earnings. So there are areas of opportunity in that market from a valuation perspective. Uh, we can actually see that there are products like, for example, our value factor ETFs that can help offset some of that risk that we're seeing. So that concentration into the top names, uh, but also into certain sectors, right? Because if you look at all those seven stocks, they're in three sectors, home services, technology, and consumer discretionary. But, you know, consumer discretionary, you're talking about Amazon and Tesla, which I think arguably could fall into the technology side, just given uh, the nature of how they've grown their business over the past decade uh, is heavily uh, involved with technology development. Now, you know, if you look at a product like uh, CUV, you can buy a basket of large cap US stocks at 11 times earnings. I think that's a good way that investors can not necessarily say like, you know, rotate all the S&P 500 into something like this, but to say you can, you know, you can build portfolios with products that are very complementary to attack the next phase of the cycle where, you know, maybe there is a change in leadership. Um, and, you know, we're, we're starting to see a bit of questions around that over the past couple of days where, you know, if, if they do miss earnings, 
Well, all of a sudden, maybe you are paying too much for those stocks. Yeah, and because I think you were saying some of the numbers that you had there were, were from October the 20th. And we, we just had a slew of earnings, as we all know. Yeah, um, exactly. so it's, it's been quite a it's been quite a story in and of itself. Um, take us through. I mean, so we 17 times earnings. I mean, just when we stick with this equity discussion, um, I mean, that's not cheap, cheap. But I mean, take us through that. Like, is, is that value? Would you say what you said was 11 that's different, but yeah, exactly. So, I mean, obviously if you are focusing specifically on the cheaper end of the market, there are opportunities there. If you're buying, if you're looking at the index, I think it's, you know, some will argue that there could be value. Some will argue that it's fairly expensive. It, it really just does depend on where earnings go uh, because if earnings, you know, hold quite well, because the reality is if you take those names out of the index, earnings growth is negative this year, but on the, the, nom- the top line, it looks okay. And it was kind of the same thing last year where earnings growth was slightly negative. But if you took out energy, it was a lot more negative. Uh, it, it's kind of flip flop this year. So I think if we can get more breadth from an earnings, like better earnings across the board, it will support those valuations a lot better. Um, I, 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 th- I just think that, you know, at this time, it's, it's just not a, a conviction one way or the other for the U.S. market, whereas you know, if we look at other regions, for example, like like international, which, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier, is seeing a lot of inflows, that market's actually trading at a sizable premium to uh, the U.S. And, and is more in line with Canada, for example. Right. Fascinating. So when we when we slice and dice and you look at you look at different ways of sizing up the equity opportunity, we look to factors, we look to we look to sectors. Um, take us through some of the other sectors, because I, I was wondering if we could actually pivot to bonds just for a second and yeah. take the sort of volatility story into the bond market, actually, for a second, because it's um, it's been a crazy place to be if you're looking mm-hmm. for you know, low vol. That's That's been a difficult thing to find. Yes. So bonds have been, I mean, there's no way to, to sugarcoat this. Uh, it's been the worst three-year period for bonds probably in history. Um, so when you're, uh, you're, you're investing in an asset class that is supposed to be an offset to, to, to equities in general, just because they historically have had low, if not negative correlations, you saw correlations move up last year when interest rate hikes, or I guess uh, central banks went on an interest rate hiking cycle pretty much across the board. Um, it, it obviously caused a lot of volatility. And, and just, to put, just to put a stat out there, I think that is really Interesting, I think, for talking about the opportunity that now lies ahead for fixed income, because I think across uh, the entire via the Fidelity <laughs> firm, if you will, talking to fixed income managers, talking to asset allocators, talking to macro strategists, like, for example, you're in Timmer, all basically saying the same thing is that bonds are attractive. Just, you know, to understand the volatility that we've seen, uh, if you look at an index or an ETF, for example, that tracks the 20 plus year treasuries in the U.S., it's down about 50.6%. And as, as of this morning, when I checked it from its peak, 50.6%. That's almost as much as the S&P 500 was down in 2008, which was about 51.5, I think, percent peak to trough. So, you know, when you look at it, you're starting to think, okay, from a mean reversion standpoint or just a long-term investment thesis, you know, if you could have bought equities at the bottom in 2008, I'm pretty sure everybody on the line would have said, I think that's a good idea. Um, that's kind of where we feel we're sitting at for bonds right now. That's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I want to take it, we'll, come, we'll circle back. And I think there's some questions rolling in here to, to take us back to some of those pieces. just want to ask you a little bit about those getting closer to retirement, uh, watching the bond markets, but watching, you know, equity markets, watching, watching everything. 
tell us about how ETFs do in in different generations. People are getting closer to retirement, for instance. Are are they as interested in ETFs as they are in mutual funds? I mean, just sort of take us through what you see in terms mm-hmm. of growth there. Yeah, well, I mean, like I mentioned, you know, the industry's seen phenomenal growth over the past 15 years, but it really hasn't slowed down these past couple, like four years. And I think the beautiful thing about the ETF market now is you've got pretty much any type of product you want, like dependent on what you're looking for as an investor. If you're closer to retirement, you know, there's a a bunch of fixed income mandates right now that are offering very attractive yields with very high credit quality. Uh, Obviously, yes, they they, they haven't done so well over the past couple of years, but there's those options. There's multi-asset portfolios are now a big category, you know, above 7 billion in assets and those types of products. Now, you also got, you know, various types of equity mandates. Like there are for example, low volatility ETFs that specifically try to invest in businesses with lower betas, lower standard deviations, uh, more stable earnings, things like that. So that's for like, for example, the people that are closer to retirement. On the flip side, if you want like high octane, high beta, there there is, you know, that stuff also. Um, actually, I was uh, in terms of like a generational interest in ETFs, if you will. Um, I was reading a, a survey that was done by uh, a, basically a dealer in the U.S., a broker, if you will, a discount brokerage, notably coming from those, their users of their discount brokerage. And 89% of millennials uh, own ETFs. And yeah. 89%. That's not surprising, right? I mean, that's not surprising. N- no, exactly. In their accounts. And they're also, you know, that is their vehicle of choice. Uh, and for actually for older generations for, and going to the other end of the spectrum that they that they surveyed was uh, the baby boomer generation is already more than 60% of them would use an ETF as a vehicle of choice. Now, keep in mind, we are talking about going through a discount brokerage channel. So it's a little bit different, right? Than just if you look at the entirety of the investor base. But I think it just goes to show that uh, the ETF vehicle is not really going anywhere. And it's likely just going to continue to gain the steam as wealth transfers happen also. Um, You know, there's demographics are generally aging. There will be transfers of wealth that are done. And as an advisor, one way to prepare for that is being equipped and having tools in the ETF space to address that demand for from the younger generation and for, uh, you know, MFDA advisors on the line that maybe think, uh, well, you know, I, I don't trade direct ETFs uh, with my dealer. Well, you know, a lot of providers like Fidelity, we offer a lot of our ETFs in mutual fund series, like a series B or series F, you know, with, with trailer or, you know, fee based. So I think now it's just gotten, there's so many options out there. There's really a, a of accessibility to anyone. So because of that, has that contributed to the growth of ETFs in, in Canada, for instance? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. And um, especially as that generation starts to make money, <laughs> right? Uh, so you're starting to see, I mean, obviously right now, one of the issues we have in Canada, and I think we've heard this multiple times is, you know, yes, we have a heavily indebted consumer base. Uh, and we've, we're right now we're seeing saving rates drop, but we're still seeing massive inflows into the ETF space where while maybe the fund side is, is seeing a bit more pressures. So I think it's just showing the resiliency, even through a period where savings are coming down because, you know, cost of debt is going up and we've got a lot of debt. So people are paying some of that back, which, uh, you know, we see as a headwind for sure. But hey, nonetheless, let's, we think that. For your, let's hit you up for your opinion on, on, on the resiliency. What's the deal? What's the deal? <laughs> uh, with regards to the economy? Yeah. Why, why are we so um, with interest rates at 5%? Well, I mean, well, we saw the GDP numbers in the U.S. once again, just really yes. surprise expectations uh, yesterday, which I think is catching a lot of people by surprise. I think we have to, 
we can't just look at you know the global economy in one uh in one bucket and say you know things are chugging along but uh canada we feel is definitely a bit more sensitive to higher interest rates and you know while that hasn't necessarily manifested itself right now because we've got such a tight labor market uh you know we feel there will be more sensitivity as for example mortgages that were fixed three four years ago come to term and now you have to reset at significantly higher rates that's a big headwind to, to uh consumers uh another one you know your line of credit it might have been at a four percent rate before it could be between seven to ten percent now depending on you know on on, on where your position and things like that so it feels like we will be a little bit more exposed in canada also because we tend to have a more cyclical market, for example. And I, I want to differentiate market and economy, but um, you know, it tends to the rhyme, if you will, when the economy is not doing so well, markets tend to follow. But uh, in the US, it's a bit of a different picture. Like when you think about it, if rates are significantly higher and you locked in a 30 year fixed mortgage rate, uh, you can then use that capital and invest it in the money market security and actually earn more than your mortgage. So in a certain way, you're pretty much creating value at that point, which is, which is a very much different dynamic than what we have here in Canada. That being said, what it does is like you're looking at the U.S. housing market right now and, you know, sales are coming down very fast. Well, the reason being is people aren't moving. People aren't buying a new house. They're up, they aren't upgrading because of that higher cost. And you can't transfer mortgages in the U.S. So you're selling your house with a 3%, 3.5% 30-year mortgage. Now you're at an 8% 30-year mortgage. Uh, so it does slow down the economy, but we see more resiliency there and just less sensitivity overall to higher cost of capital. Okay, a couple of questions. This one uh, is sort of, you know, ETFs, who they're attractive to, what, what you're noticing. Yep. So is it your statement to make that a factor, ETF, is similar to a managed mutual fund? So that, that's a very good question. And I'd say there are similarities, but there are definitely differences also. And I think it's important then, you know, if we're going to talk about those two that are more active, it's important to understand really the opposite spectrum, which is passive. Passive, you're replicating an index based on the market caps of the underlying company. So the biggest company gets the biggest weight in your portfolio. On active management, you know, you're trying to beat that benchmark. And the way that you do that is, you know, removing stocks. So taking stocks you just don't want to invest and not investing in them. You can increase weights to certain stocks or you can reduce weights to certain stocks. And an active manager will do that by doing fundamental analysis, going through financial statements, uh, you know, running cash flow models, meeting with the CEOs of those and the CFOs of those businesses and understanding where they're going and where they've been. Um, and then in the middle, you've got factory ETFs, which are basically saying, I want to do, I want to systematically pick stocks. So I guess an approach that passive does, but instead of using size or market cap as the one variable, why not use some of the fundamental metrics that our portfolio managers incorporate? And historically that's shown to add value, but to bring it to, I guess, to get really to the answer of the question is there are similarities because there is active share and active share basically measures how different are you from a given benchmark? Some managers can get to like, if you talk about small cap uh, funds and ETFs, you can get to like 99% active share because it's such a big market and you can, you know, you can pick certain ones and, and, and really get a lot of active share. A typical, very active manager, and I'd say for the large part that we have here at Fidelity are well above 75%. And for factor ETFs, you're generally 70%, around 70 to 75%. So it is still fairly active and you're taking on active bets. It's just done in a different way. One systematically and the other one tactically on a daily basis. Ah, sorry. Okay. So great answer to, to a very good question. 
I, I want to leave time to have you take us through the um, all-in-one ETFs and, and, the, and the different versions of them. So there is the conservative one, which which might be better for those, you know, obviously who have a, a lower tolerance to risk. Take us through the others and what you've noticed. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've mentioned this probably, you know, multiple times on on uh, on Fidelity Connects and other platforms is, you know, this is the culmination of five years work for the Fidelity ETF team. So we're really happy about these products. It took us five years to get here, or I guess I shouldn't say five years because we launched them two years ago, but it took us three years to launch enough products to have all the right building blocks to create these fully diversified solutions that are systematically rebalanced, offer geographical diversification, they offer obviously asset class diversification, so fixed income equities, a little bit of crypto also, uh, as well as style diversification because you're incorporating various investment factors and you're doing all of this at a very affordable cost in, in a structure where it allows us to, gives us, it gives us a chance to outperform the purely passive, uh, ETF portfolios out there, uh, among our competitors, which remain the most popular and the biggest because they've been around for longer, but we think, this approach will be very int- interesting to track over time. And, and yeah, so the, I think these portfolios, uh, like you mentioned, Pamela, there's four different options. Conservative, which is a 60% fixed income, balance, 40% fixed income, growth, which only has 15%. And then uh, we have a full-on equity mandate, which is just a good core global equity portfolio at, at the end of the day, um, really seeing uh, a lot of traction. That's brilliant. It, it tells about any changes that you've made to them. I mean, I'm just hearkening back to the comment that you made that, you know, most people who who perhaps bought were, were lucky enough to buy are smart enough to buy at the bottom in, in 2008. I've been happy with their equity equity performance since then. Um, so what are you looking at now? Like, what are the changes that are being made within mm-hmm. some of the old yeah. ones? So th- these portfolios have been, you know, like always, we, we thought a lot about what, how how we want to build these and what we want to put in. So we're not necessarily trying to change these drastically over time. But when we can play around the edges to find, you know, maybe an asset class or a region or uh, a category of various investments that maybe we're not finding directly with our factor based strategies, well, maybe it makes sense to look at it. And uh, what we've done actually in September is we've added a very small sleeve of active small caps in the portfolio. And that's managed by uh, our PMs, Connor and Chris, uh, Connor Gordon. Chris Majewski, who managed that global small cap opportunities fund. And uh, we launched it as an ETF version in May. And now that allowed us to incorporate it into these portfolios to get another dimension. You know, yes, it is a small allocation uh, of one to 2.5%, but it is also a more volatile category, right? I, I, small caps tend to have a higher uh, vol- uh, standard deviation than say large caps. And it's also something that we chose to do in an active way because Historically, well, obviously these managers are great and we really like them, but, uh, we also see that as a category that historically has been good to active management where it's been easy to beat a, ben- a global small cap benchmark because it's so big and it's very hard to eliminate a lot of names that unfortunately are just kind of, you know, average companies or even to some extent bad companies. So that active, uh, component is really going to help us going forward, uh, in, in, in this, market segment that's been really challenged over the past couple of years, but that could benefit if we see either a soft landing or eventually when we get to the rebound part of the cycle where things get materially better, small caps generally lead during that period. So it's, we didn't do it for, for a tactical reason to say like, we think we're adding this to you know get extra returns. We think it's just going to really complete and round out the portfolios over the long term. So really happy about that one. And, and obviously those managers have done an exceptional job so far. 
That's so interesting. Yeah, just to, as you say, what, what, what you can change at the margins, what, what you're interested in changing and, and, and bringing us up yeah. to date. On that. Okay, so here's a question. That, it goes back to bonds. So just kind of challenging this idea of bond volatility. So are bonds truly that volatile? Standard deviation for this year, is it within one standard deviation? Or are we currently actually in two standard deviations over 12 months? Ooh, there you mm-hmm. go. So the last 12 months is actually not so bad. <laughs> it was the, it was the 12 and 18 months before that that was very painful. Um, and I, I, you know, it, there was just no place to hide. And, you know, when you look at it, uh, in the perspective of like, say 2022, uh, the only asset class that was close to breaking even was, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, loans, which are for the most part floating rate in nature. So resetting higher as rates, uh, move up. But, you know, this year, there's been a few areas where you can find some value, like high yields done relatively well, loans have done relatively well. But if you look at treasuries or if you look at investment grade credit, anything that's got, you know, a little bit of duration left still down a bit. But we're talking, you know, the index is down low single digits right now. And, you know, it wouldn't be entirely surprising to us if we finish slightly positive or at least very close to zero by the end of the year. But, you know, it's always important. I don't think it's uh, especially for bonds. It's not as important to look backwards as as as, as much as the looking right. forward is important because it's a much more of a mathematical type of security where you know what your maturity value is, you know what your coupon is, and unless there's a default either by a sovereign nation or by a corporation, you will get that money back. And I think there's a really really good chart that uh, Yuri and Timmer uh, presented at in Palm Beach, and maybe he uh, brought it on uh, on the Monday's episode, which I unfortunately didn't get a chance to catch, but. Uh, it was looking at the risk reward of bonds right now and talking about how a 1% move up or down in, uh, you know, uh, lending rates will impact the U.S. aggregate bond index. And basically right now, if we get another 1% move higher, you're not moving at all. You're like barely negative. I think it was minus 0.7 that he identified. And if we see a move of 1% down, which if you look at where market expectations are, we're expecting 50 basis points in cuts next year. So yields could move a bit more than that. You're looking at a double-digit return for fixed income uh, markets. Or markets, right? Yeah, right. So, so, yeah, he did share that slide. Yeah, that was that was a sort of yeah. You dream about that one afterwards. Yeah. So, if ETFs aim to track the performance of their underlying index or benchmark, and over the long term, they generally seek to provide returns that gravitate to the mean. Then, how do you provide above average returns above the mean? Mm-hmm. What is the magic sauce? This is where you want to get into it. Yeah. How does this then differ from a mutual fund? So, so I think now this is a question I get very, very, very often. And uh, I think this is where that myth that we were talking, uh, we've talked about it in the past is that ETFs and funds are two investment vehicles. You can have active ETFs, like you can have smart beta ETFs, like you can have passive ETFs. What are, uh, you know, the person in the audience here is asking is referring to the passive ETF. So where you're tracking a benchmark in a systematically passive way with market cap stock selection, where so it's literally impossible to outperform the benchmark, right? Like you are replicating it and you're charging a 10 basis point fee. So technically there is 0% chance that you outperform. That's for passive. For smart beta, we're taking like, say, for example, a thousand stock index in the US and we're trying to get it down to 100 stocks or the top decile. Well, automatically by removing 900 stocks, you are inherently going to see either alpha or an underperformance. Now, obviously, if you have a good strategy, you hope there's more alpha than there is, you know, underperformance, but you're, je- you're differentiating yourself from the benchmark, hence how you could add value. Same thing for an active manager. So we now have, you know, four uh, active uh, 
managers who have uh, ETF series right now. So you could get, for example, uh, global innovators managed by Mark Schmel in an ETF. So I think it's important to understand it's not funds versus ETFs, it's active versus passive, the question that our, uh, uh, the our advisor on the line is asking. Um, so, so yeah, so that's how you do it. And actually, one last quick thing uh, on that subject is there's been significant growth in the active side of the ETF industry over the past couple of years, a growth rate of about 34% over the last three years compounded annually, whereas on the passive side, you're at about 14%. So you're seeing oh, the passive side, which... Say that again. Yeah. Sorry. 20, 20, what did you say? Yeah. So, uh, you know, historically passive has dominated the ETF industry in terms of assets, right? And it still does. It represents, you know, 68 or 67% of all the assets in Canada, but that's slowly getting trimmed down. Uh, the compounded annual growth rate, and sorry, I overestimated a little bit. I pulled it up here. It's 27% over the last three years for active ETFs and only 14% for passive. So that's hit somewhat of a maturity right? Where it's like, yeah, it's still double digit growth, but it's significantly lower than what used to be. Whereas active is kind of taking off right now and becoming a, a much bigger category, uh, representing about 85 billion in assets in Canada. So we can't really categorize ETFs as all passive and funds as all active anymore, right? There's there's so much more gray now. Well, you've brought, you've brought uh, an incredible update to us from sort of across the boards. And I appreciate you taking us through the flows and, and also getting the update on, on some of the changes. Just small ones uh, in the yep. online TX. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.